microphone here. There we go. It's a beautiful day to be here at church, and uh, one thing to remember as we're here, as we gather, as we worship, is that we get to be here. This is not a privilege that every single Christian around the world gets to enjoy, but we here in our wonderful country, uh, at least for now, still have the privilege and the uh, the uh, ability to gather together as the saints freely to worship our Lord. So um, let's keep that at the forefront of our mind this morning as we as we open the Word. And if we could also remember to continue to keep Pastor and Bonnie in our prayers as they're uh, enjoying this time of rest. I know it's uh, well needed for for them, and so we just hope that they're having a, a good time, a restful time, and that it's uh, edifying to their spirits. So today we enter into 1 John chapter 4, and uh, we are kind of beginning this uh, descent uh, towards the end of this book, though we are in the last two chapters here, there is still so much for us to take in. There's still so much that John has for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, last time I preached, last month, um, there were some repeated themes that, that we went over that harkened back to another time that I preached. It was this idea that um, from the beginning, there was this commandment to love that John says, I, I give you a new commandment, but it's not a new commandment because it's always been a part of who we are and what God expected of us. And in, in a similar way, this morning, we're going to be looking at another uh, repeated theme as, as, as John brings it up, but also some new stuff. Um, today we're, we will be talking about the spirit of Antichrist again, which, I, which I, I think I was the one who preached on that a couple months ago. So as we prepare our hearts, as we get ready to, um, to open God's word, let us bow together in a word of prayer one more time. Our Father and our God, we come before you as creatures, as sinners, as those who desperately rely upon you to sustain us. Father, we know that we deserve only your wrath, but Lord, in your great mercy and in your kindness towards us, you gave us mercy and kindness in your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, who died uh, in our place for our sins. And now, Lord, as we open your word and, and look at the truth that you have revealed to us from it, would you help us to, um, to grow in our love for Christ? Would you sanctify us by your Holy Spirit that lives within each one who calls Christ Lord? Would you cause me to decrease so that Christ may increase? Keep me from error. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So John talks a lot about the spirit of something, even if he doesn't directly say it. So um, today, we're, like I said, we're going to be looking at the spirit of Antichrist. Throughout Scripture, there's the spirit of Christ. There's the Holy Spirit. So spirit is a, is a theme throughout Scripture, but John talks a lot about it as well because John places contrasts, one side compared to or contrasted against the other. So if we just simply look back at 1 John chapter 3, we, in verse 7, 
We see, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So we have, a, in a sense, a spirit of righteousness. Those who practice righteousness are righteous. We move on to verse 9 of chapter 3 through 11. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And so we have this contrast that John brings up. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So uh, those who are evident uh, in their belonging to God are, are shown by, by their, their works, their fruits, and those who are children of the devil are likewise shown by their works and their fruit. So there is this, this divide, and you're either on one side or the other. There's no middle ground in this area. You're either a son of God or you're a son of the devil. You're either, you either have the spirit of righteousness or you have the spirit of the devil. And last time I think I brought up this illustration of Christ and his bride, that there are a lot of people who say, I, lo- I love Jesus, I like Jesus, I think Jesus is a great teacher and a really moral guy, but I really, really hate his church. I really, really don't want to go to church. But you can't have Christ without his bride, just like you can't have me without my wife. And any of you who are married, I hope that you uh, sympathize with that. You can't have one without the other. And so there's no sitting on the fence here. Um, there was a book that came out a number of years ago called Love Wins by Rob Bell. And it was kind of what brought universalism into the popular mind of today. But there, he was inspired by this picture of this bridge. And on one side is heaven and on one side is hell. And you have this picture of people walking back and forth. And so there was this idea of a middle ground there that you can just choose one or the other and at some point, everybody's going to go over to the good side because they're going to realize the bad side is bad and the good side is good. But we don't get that. This is our chance right here in this life. This is where God has placed us. This is the reality that Christ, the second member of the Trinity, has entered into his own creation who lived the life that we should live, who died the death that we deserve in our place for our sin. And God is now calling all men to repent. And some will, and some will not. But there's no sitting on the fence. In today's world, we have a very popular phrase that says, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. How many of you have ever heard somebody say that? Okay, about half of us. This is one of those phrases that you have no idea. They don't even know what they mean when they say this. You don't know what they mean. I don't know what they mean. They don't know what they mean. They just think it sounds cool. They, they think it sounds transcendent or something like that. And so they say it. I'm spiritual but not religious. So I think we should take a moment and define spirit this morning. And there are three definitions I want to look at. Two I would call our, our secular definitions, though they apply to uh, what we're talking about. And then there's a biblical definition. So the verse of the secular definitions is the non-physical part of a person. Okay, it's very simple. It's just who you are. This, this meat suit that we're wearing on the outside is, is not actually who we are, but our spirit, the non-physical part of us that, that 
makes us who we are. That's, that's what spirit is. The second uh, definition is qualities regarded as forming the definitive or typical elements in the character of a person, nation, or group, or in the thought and attitudes of a particular period. So we might have, uh, we might enjoy the spirit of America. Okay, you have those people on the Fourth of July. They've got the red, white, and blue bandanas. They've got the red, white, and blue suits. They they love their country. They're patriotic. We might call that the spirit of America. Or in high school, you might have school spirit. You might be really proud of, of your high school or wherever you, you're from. In Washington, you have a lot of purple people and a lot of crimson people and with huskies and cougars. And the cougars, those who support the cougars, are a lot like Mariners fans because they start off really hopeful and strong, and by the end of the season, well, there's always next year, right? But that's, that's the kind of spirit we're looking at there. The biblical definition. We have the Greek word pneuma. Okay, that's the word used for spirit. But the, the Hebrew um, parallel there is the word ruach, which is probably best translated to wind or breath, though it, it is translated as spirit as well. But the idea of wind or breath actually plays a pretty significant part in our understanding of what is meant with spirit throughout the Bible. Um, If we go back to Genesis, first book of the Bible, I don't want to assume anything, but if you turn back to Genesis, we see all three of these definitions used um, fairly early. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse, we'll start in verse 1, but it's in verse 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, there's that word, was hovering over the face of the waters. And so we have a a uh, person here. We have the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God who is hovering over the waters, and the Hebrew word that's used here is ruach. If we go a little bit further to Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood comes in verse 17, we read, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath, there's the word, of life under heaven, everything that is on earth shall die. So here, we, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the creator, the, the spirit of God in, in his role in creation. Now we have in Genesis chapter 6, those who have the breath of life, those who have a spirit of life. So God sustains life in this idea. And then if we go back or forward to Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, it says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind, there's the word again, blow over the earth, and the water subsided. So now we have God preserving his life using this same word. And so we, we understand that it's often used in reference to life when we consider this word. Uh, there's an intimate aspect here uh, when God has inspired the use of this word in, in the Old Testament. It's like, it's, it's, it's a personal aspect that we cannot get away from the Spirit of God because God is omnipresent, He is everywhere, but He also sustains all life by His Spirit. And there is a powerful and, and I think, awe-inspiring use of this word in Psalm chapter 33, If you bear with me for just a moment here, and this references back to creation, 
In verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. This is an incredible picture of what God can do, his power, and his glory. Okay, um, I'm often not a fan of, of paraphrase Bibles, but I do think the NLT gives a really good picture of this because it gives us this picture of God breathing out the stars. I mean, he spoke them into, this, into existence, but we have this imagery of, of the stars and these giant things. I mean, if you ever look at stars and study stars, we have a God who is much bigger and much more awe-inspiring than these stars, but the Bible uses this picture to present God in this way. But now that we have defined spirit in, in these different ways, John here tells us to test the spirits. Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So, there, there are different discussions on what this, what John could be referring to here in different commentaries. I think he's referring to actual um, beings who have different spirit ideas and, and, and um, definitions, but we get that from that many false prophets have actually gone out into the world. And so we could be looking at humans... Uh, John chapter, 1 John chapter 2 talks about those who went out from us because they weren't of us, have the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, we could be talking about uh, angelic beings or demons, but the, the idea is that there, that there is a spiritual realm. There is a spiritual existence that I don't think the church actually talks about uh, enough. But there are angels and demons. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when, it's talk, when Paul is talking about food offered to idols, he says, so there are many so-called gods and lords out there, but there is only one true God. And, um, and we are commanded to be discerning about the existence of these different spirits. So when, pe- when people say that they're spiritual, but they're not religious, I find this to be a very dangerous place to be. Because, one, you can't test the spirits. You can't actually do what John is commanding to do here if you don't have religion. We know in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for training and correction, reproof, um, uh, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's how we test the spirits. We test them by the revelation that God has given to us in his word. And if we're just spiritual, but we're not religious, we're essentially in a free fall of empty spirituality, and that leads to all different kinds of deceptions and different ideas of what uh, spirituality actually is. And I think it does open doors to the demonic and the satanic. In our world today, Satan is uh, portrayed to be a fairy tale. He's something that the church or Christians made up in order to scare children into being obedient to their parents. But the reality is that Satan is actually real. He's not like God. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. But the Bible does say that he does prowl around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is somebody we should be aware of but we should not fear. Every religion that is not biblical Christianity is satanic in nature. 
because every other religion that is not biblical Christianity rejects Christ. They have the spirit of Antichrist. And these different things, though some may be small, some may be bigger, are actually making their way into the church today. And I'll give you some examples, and the first one may um, cause some of your ears to, to stand up. Because here's the thing, if you ever want to make a bunch of Christians mad on Twitter, just talk about how bad yoga is. Okay? You will make a lot of people angry. But, my personal view, I think this is one of the things that has come into the church that is not good for the church. If you study yoga and what it does and what it's meant to do and where it comes from, it is an empty and dangerous spiritual practice. Next one is something called the Enneagram. How many of you have ever heard of the Enneagram? Okay. A lot of people call this Christian horoscopes. Okay. I'm not going to go into it today, but it's basically a personality test. It basically tells you who you are. And one thing that I've kind of come to the conclusion on, if you need a test to tell you who you are, what you like, uh, what you want in life, you don't really know yourself all that well and should probably seek help. But... A lot, this is making its way in the church, but also in, in society as well. A lot of employers are using the Enneagram to hire people. So it gives you a number, just a quick rundown. It gives you a number, basically, at the end. So you might be a two. I don't know what a two means. I've never done it. But let's say you're a two, and this company is looking for a four. And you apply, and you hit all the right qualifications. They're really impressed with you, and then they look at your Enneagram number, and they think, oh, we already have a lot of twos really need a four, so we're going to pass on you until we find a four. Even though you're fully qualified for the job here, we're going to go with somebody else because you don't fit the Enneagram number. Third one is horoscopes. see a lot of this today. Um, won't go into that. You all know what that is. Fourth, and this one is an actual church, or what they call a church in Redding, California. You've heard me bring them up before. I'm sure you're tired of it, but it's Bethel Church in Redding, California. And One of the interesting things about Bethel Church is they have what's called the School of Supernatural Ministry, where you can go, you pay them money to go learn how to prophesy, learn how to heal, learn how to do all these different spiritual things. And here's the the interesting part. So during COVID, that school closed. Give you a second to let that sit. So the, the school that teaches you how to heal had to shut down during COVID. I think they're back up now, which is unfortunate. But, but if, you're at, if, you, if, if any of these are offensive to you, okay, um, I would just encourage you um, to, to research and study and look into them. There's a great podcast that's called The Cultish Podcast that, that handles all these things. Really great resource. I would, I would highly recommend them. But one thing I don't want you to think I'm saying, I don't want you to think that I'm blaming Satan for everything. I don't want you to think that it's the whole devil, the devil made me do it kind of thing. Because there are three things the Bible talks about that are kind of our adversary that, that come at us. And that's the world, the flesh, the devil. Okay? Like I said, the devil's not everywhere all at once. And he's probably got bigger problems in his own existence than you. Okay? Another thing is... We also have the world and the flesh to deal with, and I don't know about you, but the flesh, my own flesh, does enough to mess up my life as it is. I don't really need the devil to come in and do that. I do a fine job of that on my own. But we are responsible for our own sin. And I want to say that again. 
We are responsible for our own sin. We sin because we want to sin. Nobody makes us do it. But one thing the devil does do is he works through different religious systems in the world. And he deceives us into thinking things are good when they are not. Uh, the last church I was part of, I led the youth group, and a student one week brought tarot cards and crystals because they helped her feel closer to God. And if you, if you break all of these worldly things down, it all comes down to feeling-based. It's all emotion. It's all about what makes me feel close to God. Scripture is completely pushed aside, but we can't, we already said this, we cannot test the spirits without it. If you look at Leviticus, it talks a lot about these occult and pagan practices and how a Christian or Jew, people of God, are supposed to handle them, and it is to have nothing to do with them. And that means even if we can so-called redeem these acts and make them spiritual, it doesn't actually redeem them. The fastest growing religious movement in America among young people is Wicca, or paganism, uh, magic, and spells, and conjuration. And one of the things that's making it popular in today's generation is TikTok. There is a whole segment of TikTok called Witch Talk that teaches kids how to perform spells and do rituals and, and all that. If your kid has TikTok, get rid of it. I have a TikTok. I don't know why. I haven't gone on it in a long time. It's not a helpful tool and can actually be used in a lot of very dangerous ways. But one particular TikTok influencer, uh, is called, she, she has started a movement called Christian Witches. And it's this idea that Jesus was an actual witch, and all his miracles were done by magic and conjuration and all that. And there are a lot of Christians who have bought into this, who, who go into this movement because they are giving some sort of empty spiritual explanation for all of these uh, things we see in the Bible. They're going everywhere except Scripture. They're going everywhere except the Word of God. And all Christians, one of our duties is to practice discernment. It is not just for church leaders. It is not just for pastors. It is not just for elders to stand up here and give you instruction, and that's all you do. It is your responsibility as a Christian. It is my responsibility as a Christian to know the Bible, to know God's Word, to be able to discern what is good, what is not, what is right, what is wrong, what is godly, and what is not. Mature Christians help the immature, correct those who are wrong. Young Christians can often be taken captive by even the smallest spiritual experience. And we see a little bit about this in the other passage that Jay read a, little, a few moments ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. We have this, this look of Christian leaders here to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, and here's, here's instruction here, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. So those who labor among you, who are over you, esteem them. They're leaders in the church. 
In Titus 1, chapter 9, if we look ahead at that, or uh, verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9 of, of Titus, it says this, he, this is a, an elder, this is part of the qualifications for elders, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is one of the jobs of an elder and an overseer in the church, to know Scripture, to teach it, and be able to correct wrong teaching, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and to help the weak. We must test everything. And the direct context in 1 Thessalonians here is prophecy. It says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. So what is prophecy? Well, I think uh, most of us are probably cessationists, and we don't really hold to the belief that there are modern-day prophets who can predict the future, okay? But we can, I believe, speak prophetically, not to predict the future or anything like that, but it's to look at Scripture, to base everything on Scripture, to see the patterns that are given, especially with, with nations who turn away from God, and be able to see that, that 10 out of 10 times those nations were judged by God. And if they haven't been yet, they will be unless they repent. So we can speak that. We can speak what the Bible says. We can go to our state leaders and call them to repent. We can go out onto the street and call them to repent and just tell them what the Bible says. That you, You're on one side of the aisle. You need to be on the other side of the aisle or else God is going to judge you. And then we tell the truth about who Christ is because that is the tool that God has given us, which is the gospel. Uh, there is a film coming out very soon. I think it's called The Cessationist Film that is, is meant to kind of... Um, put these things into a clearer picture. There's also um, the American Gospel movies. If you haven't uh, watched those, I highly recommend them. There are two out right now, and the third one coming out deals with um, uh, cessationism and what that looks like. Um, but, they're, um, but they're very helpful resources. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 18 gives tests for prophets um, if their prophecies don't come true, the punishment, the penalty is actually death um, in the Old Testament times. That's what God required of a false prophet. And if their prophecies don't come exactly how they predicted, we should not fear them. So you have all these people out there who have so-called predicted future events, and people get freaked out, especially when it comes to the end times. Um, you had a lot of people back in the day, selling everything that they had and, and waiting for the rapture to happen, and then nothing happened. But they were scared into that. And the Bible says we shouldn't be scared when these false prophecies come forth. But you cannot test things without Scripture. Now, John, in this passage, now we're going to get with the direct context here, John was dealing with heresies. There were already heresies in the first century going on. And uh, two of those was, were Gnosticism and Docetism. Gnosticism, in a simple way, is, is described as, as having secret or hidden knowledge. And this is usually, I think, where, where John is writing about the false prophets coming in. This idea that they knew the right way, that, yeah, Jesus is, is good and, and great and all, but I know something that you don't know. I know how you can 
really get saved. And we see this today. We see this today. There are people who say that Christianity is wrong and that they're a prophet and they know how to get you saved. The other one is docetism. This one is, is, is interesting. It's, it's that Christ being God makes him spirit and he only appeared to take on flesh when he came to earth, that he, was not, he didn't actually have a physical body. He just appeared to. And I think it's interesting that today we actually have the opposite problem going on. People have no problem believing that Jesus was a person, that Jesus came in the flesh, but they have a problem with him being God. And so it's, it's interesting how those two things kind of flipped. But we do still see and deal with these things today. Now, one of the things that John says is a, is a uh, proof of being on the right side, of being with the Spirit of God, is believing rightly about Christ. Uh, in verse 2, we, we see, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Okay? Now, that's not the only test. Okay? Uh, we have to take Scripture as a whole. Uh, we do know that there are other religions who believe that Jesus is either God or a God who came in the flesh. So they, they admit that. We see that in the, the Latter-day Saint cult. But they reject the other uh, important things about Christ. They, they take part in a form of Gnosticism, especially uh, Joseph Smith of, of Latter-day Saint. He believed he had a vision He had secret knowledge that nobody else had, and therefore he started the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint. But the gospel is not hidden knowledge. The gospel is clear. The message of the gospel is presented to us in a way that even the youngest, with some understanding, can understand it. John is clear in his presentation here. John doesn't leave us guessing. John doesn't leave us wondering, well, maybe, maybe I did the right thing or maybe I'm believing the right thing. No, John lays it out. If you look at all of his writings, if you look at his gospel, if you look at his epistles, he is very clear in, in the message that he is trying to present. So how do we react to this? There are different, different ways. We know as good, wonderful Christians, we react by saying yes and amen. We think that's great. Okay, James talks about demons, and that he says that you believe in Jesus, well, congrats, congrats on you. Even the demons believe in Jesus, and they tremble. They tremble. John MacArthur poses this, if the demons believe, tremble, and are not saved, what does that say about those who profess to believe and don't even tremble? We come to church on the Lord's Day. When we walk through those doors, what is our attitude that we have? Why are we here? Are we here because it's what we do on Sundays? Are we here because it's expected of us? Or do we come here because we long to be in the presence of the saints? We long to worship God. We long to open up his word and to to hear God speak from it. And we come and we worship him. That should be our attitude that we have. Because if that's not our attitude, if we think God is just, okay, cool, he saved us, that's awesome, but we don't see him how he requires us to see and how he deserves to be seen as holy and just and good, we're really no better than the demons. We need to love God. We need to 
raise up Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. So, to confess Christ is a good test that we are on the right side. But then, in verse 3, John says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, who you, which you have heard was coming, and now is in the world already. This is the denial of Christ. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before the Father. Whoever denies me, I shall deny. This isn't just denying or acknowledging in words, but it's also acknowledging and denying in deeds. Many deny Jesus with their words. That's not something that's uncommon in the world today. But many who confess Christ deny him with their deeds. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is quoting Isaiah, says, They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Must test the spirits. Do we believe the gospel? Do we believe what God has revealed to us? And we know that the spirit of the Antichrist is real. John said it in chapter 2 and now again in chapter 4. And we can, all we have to do is look around at the world and, and society and we see the proof of the spirit of Antichrist is well and good. There's a poem by uh, a man named Paul Harvey. And it's called, If I Were the Devil. And I would put this right up there with Orwell in the uh, prophetic utterances that were, that were given. I'm not going to read it all because I don't know if it's copyrighted or not, but I will read some of it. Um, but he says, he starts with the church, that I'd subvert the churches first. The young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. The old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. Go after the church first because it's the last line of defense. It's the last moral standard. It's the last bulwark to a just and free society. Church has to go first. Because when the church goes, everything else naturally collapses from there. He continues, I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting, peddle narcotics to whom I could, tranquilize the rest with pills, families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves. I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to, dis- to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Soon I could, could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and, defy sci- and deify science. I would make the symbol for Easter an egg. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun. Folks, this was written in 1965. Our so-called prophets today, I think there were two that were pretty close. But we know the spirit of Antichrist is hard at work today. But we have a defense against it. We have God's revelation. We have God's word. We have the truth that we stand on, even if we stand alone. What are we willing to sacrifice for this truth? Are we willing to sacrifice our freedoms? Are we willing to sacrifice our employment to be able to say, I stood on the truth, I stood on the word of God, and I did not falter. Our jobs as Christians is to be discerning, to confess Christ in everything, to obey him, that he came in the flesh, that he is God, that he is Lord, that he is Savior, that he is King of kings in all things, that Christ 
second member of the Trinity, left his throne in heaven, took on flesh by entering into his own creation, living a perfect life, obeying the law perfectly, doing what we could not do, and then dying a death that we deserve on the cross in our place for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God completely, raising himself by his power and the power of God from the dead and ascended to heaven sitting on the right hand sitting at the right hand of the father and the gospel says if you call on me as lord and savior if you repent of your sins if you turn from your wicked ways and flee to Christ you will be saved that God will take out your heart of stone replace it with a heart of flesh that he will make you a new creation And this offer is on the table this morning. And I pray that you, if you do not know Christ, that you would receive it, that you would receive him, that you would repent, that you would turn from your sins, that you would turn to your only hope, your Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would be filled with the knowledge of him, that you would be filled with the Spirit of Christ to know what is good, what is right, and what is true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. I know that there is more to say in this, and, uh, but I am out of time now. And I don't know, maybe I threw off Pastor's preaching schedule. We'll let him uh, figure that out when he, when he comes back. Um, but this is my plea to you. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for making it something that is not hidden or mysterious to us, but, Lord, that you have come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that you have condescended to come down to our level, so to speak, to save us. Now, Father, for us who who are in Christ, for us who have that spirit of Christ. I pray that you would, by your spirit, make us discerning, that we would be able to test the spirits rightly, and that we would be able to help and guide those who are weak in the faith and faithfully preach the gospel who are lost, to those who are lost. Father, as we continue in our worship, I pray that it would be pleasing to you, that it would be glorifying to your Son, whose precious name we pray. Amen.